0: This is DMOU, Destination Marketing Organization University, the DMO Sectors Podcast, and I'm your host, Bill Geist. DMOU is where you hear the best and the brightest in the destination marketing space sharing innovative and compelling stories to inspire you to take your destination and organization to the next level. Today's episode sponsored by our friends at Carver Ties. Last fall, when Visit Lake Charles wanted to target Austin, Texas with a culinary travel campaign, they used a secret ingredient. A fleet of ride-sharing vehicles covered with tantalizing images of Lake Charles. And while those cars were cruising the streets of Austin, Lake Charles saw a 65% increase in web visitors from the Austin area and an 8% bump in overnight and restaurant sales year over year. Carvertise has helped hundreds of national brands and DMOs extend their messaging to where the people live and through a fleet of over a half a million wrapped Uber and Lyft cars. You can send those cars to this summer's biggest events, malls, sporting events in your key markets—place your brand and message front and center this summer with Carvertize. Check out the video at Carvertize.com/brands and look for them at the Simple View Summit later this month in Houston. And now it's on to our show. As the director of Discover Flagstaff. Trace Ward brings nearly 30 years of experience in the hospitality destination marketing and management arena. His career includes senior level sales and marketing positions with iconic brands such as Starwood, Hilton and Marriott. In his previous position, he led the team as the executive director of Experience Kissimmee, the convention and visitors bureau for Osceola County, Florida. Trace enjoys working with industry partners and the community in which he serves to bring about positive results and change. A native of Omaha. He received a degree in business management from Bellevue University, as well as he earned multiple certificates from Starwood, Marriott, Hilton and Destinations International. And additionally, he's an adjunct professor at NAU's College of Business and has earned his master's degree in leadership from the same university. Trace Ward, welcome to DMOU.
1: Bill, glad to be with you. Thanks for
0: having me. It's been too long, man, and, and it's really been too long for us and Flagstaff. I looked back and it was about a decade ago. The last time I was in Flagstaff in your fabulous destination and interfacing with your industry partners. So I thought I would go back and I would kind of reacquaint myself with the destination on discoverflagstaff.org. Love the site. Beautiful photography. Great video. But I saw something that I don't think I'd ever seen before. Maybe I'm just not paying attention, but this is the kind of stuff I live for. Before we get to your three questions and bonus round, what is astrotourism?
1: yeah we have quite the rich history of astronomy here in flagstaff and bill 10 years really Come yeah on now
0: it was 10 years you know, ago we got to get you back i know I yeah know. we
1: got to get you back here we got to get you back here let me know right we'll, yeah we'll show you around Astro um, astrotourism uh, we really are one of the best places on the planet for astro tourism, and that's for both folks that are in the profession as well as novice folks, people that are interested in any way. We are the first city in the world to be designated a dark sky city. So you can be walking in downtown Flagstaff on any clear night and you can see the Milky Way with your naked eye. Yeah. It's really quite astonishing. When I moved here, I was always amazed. We would uh, sit out at night, just look at the stars, go up to Lowell Observatory so we, we're the first international dark sky city. We're also a city that hosts a, one of the premier uh, observatories in the world is Lowell Observatory. It's literally five minutes from my office. It's right on Mars Hill, right in downtown Flagstaff. Okay, Lowell's famous for many things, but one of them is that they discovered Pluto. Wow. Yeah, that was almost 100 years ago. They discovered Pluto, the planet, which we like to still call it a planet. Um, and they have lots of other claims to fame. Um, they're actually right now putting $50 million into the gift shop and into a new outdoor observatory. It'll be one of the only observatories in the world that as is an open-air mm-hmm. observatory where you're actually just viewing the night sky. It's not projected onto, onto a screen. So it's pretty cool.
0: Very amazing. I can't wait to get back out there and check it all out. And, you know, we just got the uh, notification today that... Tomorrow night is supposed to be one of the biggest chances for the Aurora Borealis to be seen up here in Wisconsin, and naturally, you know what's going to happen tomorrow night. We're scheduled to get six inches of snow, so we're not going to see anything, so it makes me crazy, but uh, yeah, tourism that's great. That's super cool. I didn't realize you could see
1: the Aurora Borealis from Wisconsin. That's news to me.
0: Not very often, probably three or four times a year. You have to get up a little farther north to be guaranteed. But every once in a while we get one, and of course, most of the time it's cloudy. So, you know, I'm going to have to go to Alaska to see the the northern lights. So here's your first question. Anybody who's read our book, Destination Leadership, knows that I am not the biggest fan of DMOs that are divisions of other community development agencies or arms of government. I will never say those two models don't work. We all know that there are a lot of examples where they are working. But you have to admit, the deck is kind of stacked against you. In Flagstaff, you are both a unit of your economic vitality division and a unit of city government, and it works pretty freaking well. And that's why I wanted to get you on the show to figure out how. What's that secret sauce that you've created? You told me that it works so well because you were very intentional from the get-go when you got to Flagstaff about designing a power team with complementary goals and respect. So take us back to the beginning of this new kind of collaboration model that you have successfully with other partners in the city created?
1: Sure, so I guess for starters, I've, I've been a leader in the space for a variety of different government structures, county, city, and 501c6. So I've had the pleasure of working under each one of those and understanding the positives and the negatives of them Um, I think I'll focus just for a minute on, you know, working uh, under a city governance structure, uh, which is where I am presently. I I started Flagstaff eight years ago uh, and it's going great. We have an excellent team, excellent product, great relationships. So there's a lot of different experiences, scenarios and stories out there. I can only give you mine and then we can juxtapose that uh, to dominant thought on the topic of pros and cons for governance structure for DMOs or DMMOs, maybe we'll say. So the gaps in the process, production, and product are, are not as big as you'd might imagine uh, working for a city government opposed to a 501c6, or perhaps not as big as they were at one time. That's my opinion. So the dominant thought is that DMOs run under a run under a governance uh, structure for government, are slower to market, allow less necessary travel, go through arduous procurement processes, right? spend more time politicking. And I'm sure there might be more. I'm sure a critic of it could come up with some more. Maybe you have a few more to add to that list, Bill.
0: One of mine tends to be that it is more difficult, I think, to generate private sector matching funds in a governmental setting. I mean, there's a couple others that we'll get to later on, but that's one of the ones that we typically see. But we have, I I can't remember the city we were working with, but we suggested to the county that maybe you want to take a look at 501 because you can take the room tax money that you're investing and maybe we could match it through private sector partnerships or sponsorships or co-op or whatever it is. And they said, we can't take private money. And I said, uh, the baseball field that you've got down the street that has all those ads all over the outfield wall, I said, what's that? Uh, (laughs) And the guy goes, oh, yeah, I guess we can take money,
1: right? Yeah, that's a good point. That is a good point. So we certainly can do co opable programming under this government structure, but we aren't a membership-based. We're a partner-based organization. Um, And thank goodness our BBB tax collection, which is how we're funded, has been extremely healthy for well over 10 years. But, um, you know, we always keep a good reserve because you never know what's going to happen. But talking about how we work under this structure and why it is successful for us um, is that we not only have a, you know, really healthy and happy and incredibly talented team But we also focus on making sure we have a really high-quality, consumer-facing product and that we run efficiently. Part of why that is, is because from the get-go, we embrace the structure. So it's like I tell my team, you know, with procurement and other challenges they may have, you know, you don't want to see blood, don't be a nurse. So we're in a governance structure that we know have these particular hurdles, so we embrace all of those hurdles to begin with, and then we build in time to manage around those. So one of the things that we do that keeps us successful is that we keep creative services in-house. Okay. So that accomplishes a few things. First of all, we get creative services talent that live in our community and have intimate ties to the community. The creative services staff have time to really marinate in our brand, And our brand position, I've managed agency relationships before. I don't believe that's the case with agency relationships, at least most of the time. Also, you know, we go through a procurement process, but we don't have to go through one if we have an in-house creative services. Mm -hmm. So it helps us get faster to market with creative and it also produces a better and more nuanced product to our brand. So that's one way. You also have to remember that no matter what governance structure you're under, the monies are going to be collected and distributed through a municipality every time. So when you're part of a city government, you're closer to the money than you would be if you're in a 501c6, for instance. Yeah. So we understand the challenges of the city budget each and every year. We know the players at City Hall. They're our team members and our colleagues. And we hear about all the budget conversations and issues uh, almost immediately as they manage, you know, uh, and we can manage basically to all of those beliefs and perceptions right away, sort of staying ahead of the curve. The big one that you'll hear uh, as a challenge for being under a, a government structure is procurement. And there's no doubt that it is harder to procure services when you're under a government structure. It just is. So take a deep breath, communicate your challenges to city leadership, make changes where you can, and be sure to build in time in your programming to work under this structure. So the 11th hour panic often is associated really with just poor planning. So we plan ahead, we embrace the structure, We make sure that we build in the appropriate time. Now, one last thing is to say on the positive side, being under the city, we have a level of transparency and trust with the community that you may not find with other uh, DMOs that are under a private uh, nonprofit structure.
0: Yeah, unless the municipality in question has a difficult relationship with their residents. But I agree with you. And and I think the other thing that, that really works well, mm-hmm. and this is one that Mora Gass told me, because Mora, at the Irving, Texas CVB, I'm going to say 15, 20 years ago, was mulling whether or not it would make more sense for her to remove herself from city government and create a 501 for all the reasons that you and I have been talking about. And when it didn't happen... Mm-hmm. She came back after the convention center project was completed and she goes, you know something that convention center wouldn't be standing there if I wasn't part of city government, because I'm in high level meetings every week. And yes, a lot of those meetings don't involve me and I could be doing something else, but I know that at any moment in time, any day of the week, I can walk down the hall and I got my question answered and solved because we work together every single day, right? You're
1: closer to where the sausage was made.
0: Right. There are advantages. So, and, and now I'm getting away from municipality and back to being a part of the economic vitality department. Okay. The fear always is, I think, that economic development sounds more important than destination marketing. And somehow, and this is playing out right now in the state of Ohio with a, a proposal in the legislature where they're going to merge economic vitality and tourism into one big department of marketing for the entire state, for every reason, for every person, for everything. And of course, the fear is, wait whoa, 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 this this tourism money is going to get absorbed over here in economic vitality, and because it sounds more important than what we do, when in fact, we're the ones who are expert at B2C communications, as David Gilbert said in an earlier podcast from Destinations Cleveland, we're the ones who know how to talk to individuals, to consumers economic development knows how to talk to business, we can't lose the money that is supposed to go to consumer inspiration into a pot that just sounds better, but they're not prepared to do what needs to be done. Makes sense?
1: It does. It does. And, And earlier, earlier I had said that, you know, there's a lot of individual experiences and scenarios out there, and I can really only tell you mine. I do recognize the possibilities, which I I think is part of the conversation. Really, you're talking about an allocation of a tax source, and that allocation is potentially on the menu at any time.
0: Yeah, right.
1: So whether that's for business attraction, retention, expansion, or whether that's for tourism, if we get individuals in the city government that want to reallocate those funds, that's a challenge that we're going to have to deal with as it comes up. We do not have that issue in Flagstaff currently at the moment. um, We work well with the rest of the economic vitality team, which is business attraction, retention, expansion. In fact, we have a lot of programming around it. Gore is a big employer here in town, right. Gore Industries. And Bill Gore came here in 1964 on a trip with his family to go hiking. That's how that company found a home. Yeah, And so we know for a fact that a great place to live, visit, is also a great place to start a company and to relocate and to expand and those sorts of things. So we have... Uh, a visit, discover, grow program that works with economic by all the other divisions, sections, I should say, of economic vitality. And honestly, um, currently, the business attraction, retention, expansion do get some of the BBB funds. OK, so they're part of the allocation currently. No risk of them getting more of it that I'm aware of. Uh, but again, it, it is a possibility.
0: Well, but that's what you said, I think, at the outset about the intentional way that you built this relationship with all of these divisions is that there is an understanding of the interaction and the synergy between visitors to become future residents, to become future investors. That's where it breaks down. And that's where I think the fear of being part of economic development or being part of municipality comes into play in the people that we talk to, is that there isn't that understanding. And yet you've created it. And so as long as the players are in place and there's that mutual respect and acknowledgement that tourism isn't an afterthought, it really should be almost the first thought, because that's how everything else happens. Get them to visit, get them to live, get them to invest, right?
1: Well said. And tourism is the number one industry in Flagstaff. Uh, 75% of all emplainments are visitors into our small resort port. I think it's widely accepted that it's a vital part of the overall economy. So we've done a good job of keeping relevant, showing value and collaboration. And I think that was the
0: key. Okay. So there's the connection with municipality there's the economic vitality side of it and then there's residents which we all know over the past decade or so we've become more sophisticated to understand how important uh, resident sentiment really is and you've done that expertly as well which again and this is just you know my personal experience in working with municipal and county dmos is they oftentimes are not nearly as responsive and connected to residents because they don't believe they need to, council members need to deal with residents, you know, we're, we're going to do our work. And so that's not what you're doing at all. You also are absolutely connecting with residents. And one of the ways that you did that was to join Pledge for the West and one of the first DMOs to do so. Tell us about that program and how that essentially communicates to your residents that you got their back.
1: Yeah. Thanks for the question, Bill. And, and the, the program was actually, I'm going to give a quick shout out to uh, Kevney at Bend, Oregon. He is such an advocate for yeah. keeping uh-huh. the wild places wild. Uh, has Kevney been on your show?
0: Not yet, but we have talked.
1: Gotcha. Well, he'd be a great one, but he actually, it started there and we were one of the early adopters The program is actually called Pledge for the Wild, and it's about keeping our wild places wild. Um, In essence, it educates the public, both local and visitor, on how to keep your destination's wild spaces wild, clean, how to be a responsible visitor, how to take care of your trails and your wild spaces. You know, much of the program really is on the onus of the destination. I believe there's around 10 or so now that are uh, they're mountain towns that are have joined. We were, again, one of the early adopters. And the onus is on the, the destination to turn it into what they want. I mean, we use owned, earned, paid media to get the messaging out there for responsible visitation. We also have QR codes and graphics on the backs of all the coasters in town for the breweries and the bars because we figure, after you go hiking, what better activity to do than go have a beer? <laughs> so it's a way for them to, you know, yep. have their beer, take a look at the program. They can scan the QR code. They can donate from their phone. We're asking them to donate, you know, a dollar a mile, five dollars a mile on the trails, whatever they can afford to do. In appreciation for the trails, and 100% of the donation goes to a local Flagstaff nonprofit called the Flagstaff Trails Initiative, who takes care of, cleans up the trails, and also works with the wayfinding and signage. So it's a pretty cool program. It's been very successful, and the community is appreciative of it.
0: Well, and that's really the key is that you just can't say that you are supportive of the environment or quality of life or whatever, you really have to show it. And, you know, I think that there was a great example of this. And we had her on a couple of years ago. Uh, Jennifer Wesselhoff, then of Sedona, said that the community really felt that the Chamber Bureau did not have their back. They saw no, no example of that until they came up with their destination stewardship plan. And all of a sudden, all the rancor that was happening, what, five, six, seven years ago, subsided, at least for a while, until it it popped back up again. But but it was, oh, you guys live here too. Duh, you don't want this to come apart. And so I think what you've done is gotten ahead of it uh, as well and found a real great way to walk the walk, right?
1: Yeah, I appreciate that. And, you know, obviously with Sedona only being half hour down the hill from us and our sister city, we follow that pretty closely. And friends with Jennifer as well. So yeah, they, they, they did everything they could. I do believe that, you know, it's not every destination's built the same and the communities are different. Mm-hmm. To me, Sedona sits right in the middle of one of the wonders of the world. And so they're going to get a lot of over love and over tourism down there because the thing to see is right in the city. With Flagstaff, a lot of our monuments and our big attractions, key drivers, are outside of our city, and they have a much smaller community. There's only 9,000 people in, in Sedona, and yeah. many of them are retired. They don't rely on mm-hmm. income from businesses and that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and because housing is so difficult, the people who do rely on tourism often don't live within city limits. So it is a uh, exactly it is a true yin and yang. So listen, thank you for sharing the story. We gotta get to your bonus round question and you know we live in farm country up here in wisconsin so it's nothing to see large families but tell us how large your family was growing up in omaha nebraska
1: yeah so i have 14 brothers and sisters wow and yes but i will tell you we were not the largest family in the neighborhood we had uh, a neighbor just a block away that had 17 no twins get out we had 15 no twins yeah it's not that unusual in nebraska especially back then you know i was very much raised by my brothers and sisters my dad worked for union pacific railroad for 47 years and he was the king of overtime so he really wasn't home that much right and my mom actually uh, managed a coffee shop at the local hospital not too far so I was assigned my sister, Linda, who lives in Dallas, Texas. So she was my second mom growing up. And quite honestly, she was just a kid too, you know. So it made for an interesting uh, upbringing, I will tell you that. No one worried about locking doors. It and it's a different you know, time. Pretty much wide open. All the
0: time. And not just your siblings, but yes. neighbors were helping to raise you too, right? Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, all of the, the neighborhood kids and, the you know, you'd go over to their house and, Spend the night, play, whatever. So you were being raised by the whole neighborhood, basically. And, you know, as a latchkey kid, I can remember, you know, being as I was the youngest. And so I was born in 69. So in the 70s, of course, uh, I can remember, like, jumping up and down on my sister's waterbed while my, I had six <laughs> sisters, while they're all getting ready to go out and do what they're going to do. They're maybe in junior high, high school. And, you know, we'd be listening to all the latest records that just Mm -hmm. came out, such as Rumors, Fleetwood Mac. And uh, so I was really raised by junior high and high schoolers, to be honest. It made me who I am today, which is very independent, Mm -hmm. always solution-oriented, looking for uh, resourceful. I would call myself resourceful. I attribute it to that.
0: Yeah, great story. Uh, Have you ever had those conversations with other kids from either a very, you know, one, two kid family versus 15 to try to get your head around what the advantages or disadvantages. I mean, I absolutely see what you're saying. I mean, coming from a family like that, that's latchkey. you grow up fast and you learn the ways of the street and how to get things done. Right. Yeah. And you almost wonder if maybe that's not a better way than Growing up fairly insulated and coddled.
1: Yeah, well, uh, you know, the, the helicopter parent thing, I had to really take a double take on that because I know nothing about it. And yeah, I had friends who were single, had no, no siblings. And generally speaking, they were always jealous of me. <laughs> they were jealous of me because I had all of these sort of young influences in my life and always had a lot of activity. I mean, if we had... Friends over, if different siblings had friends over, we could have 25 kids in the house on a given day. Jeez. And uh, how my mom managed it is truly a miracle. She's still with us and still lives in the same house. She's 92 years Great. old. Oh, wow. She gardens every day. Yeah. Pretty incredible story, really. But so I'm glad I have the upbringing I did and the brothers and sisters to lean on and to learn from and to laugh with. And if I was an only child, honestly, I I don't even know what that would be like. It's too foreign to imagine.
0: On the other side, it's got to be expensive at holiday gift giving season.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, yeah. And, you know, my dad was a mechanic and my mom was a waitress more or less. So you had to rely on being happy. uh, Keep your expectations in check, so to
0: speak. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, hey, thank you so much, Trace. And congratulations on building a rock solid program in an environment that often conspires against DMOs in similar situations. Great story. Glad we could get you on for you to be able to to share that with us. So thank you so much. Thanks,
1: Bill. I really appreciate it.
0: All right. Well, that's it for this edition of DMOU. Thanks to this episode's sponsor, our friends at Carvertize. Last fall, when Visit Lake Charles wanted to target Austin, Texas with its culinary travel campaign it used a secret ingredient. A fleet of ride-sharing vehicles covered with tantalizing images of Lake Charles, and while those cars cruised the streets of Austin, Lake Charles saw a 65% increase in web traffic from the Austin area and an 8% growth in overnight and restaurant sales. Carvertise has helped hundreds of national brands and DMOs extend their messaging to where people live through their fleet of over a half a million Lyft and Uber cars. Place your brand and message front and center this summer with Carvertize. Check out the video at Carvertize.com/brands and look for them at the Simple Summit this month in Houston. DmoPros.com is where you're going to find more on our services to the DMO world, plus links to past editions of the Z News, our homepage position papers, the book Destination Leadership, the biggest DMO job board on the planet, as well as links to earlier episodes of DMOU. That's DmoPros with a Z.com. Executive producer of DMOU is Terry White, and this is a production of DMO Pros. I'm your host, Bill Geist. Until next time.